Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022. From the Politics section... Scotland's politicians need to wake up to reality in our communities. By Jane Cassidy. Political leaders appear to have forgotten Scotland's drugs death crisis, campaigners claimed, as they published a report calling for the changes to treatment services. The group Favour, Faces and Voices of Recovery, claimed to sell a postcode lottery in terms of treatment for users, with referrals to residential rehab centres inconsistent. It published its report a year after the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross visited a community group in Glasgow to set, to set up to try to help addicts. Kenny Trainer, founder of the Blueville Community Centre, said, We were delighted to welcome the First Minister and other politicians to Blueville last year, but what we said then still applies now. Scotland's politicians need to wake up to the reality in our communities. Some 1,330 people lost their lives to drug misuse in Scotland in 2021, a drop of 1% from the previous year. Favour Scotland Chief Executive Anne-Marie Ward said, Our report identifies the deep-rooted problems and outlines a series of recommendations to improve how we treat people. It looks like politicians have forgotten about Scotland's drug death crisis. We hope our blueprint to save lives will remind them communities are still suffering and they need to act. Some authorities refused to refer users to residential rehabilitation services outside their local area, the report claims. It adds that some people have been waiting years for appointment services and claims that in many cases treatment is solely pharmaceutical with no mental health support. The report calls for a centralised referral and funding system and guidelines to be brought in to ensure mental health support is provided. Drugs Policy Minister Angela Coulston said, As we do all we can to help families cope, with the cost of living crisis, we're even more focused on supporting those affected by problems substance use, delivering real change in the ground and implementing approaches we know can help to save lives. Anyone who needs support should have access to whatever type of treatment or recovery works best for them. For some it will be medication assisted treatment, but it could be rehabilitation in the community or residential placements. That's why we're investing £100 million in residential rehabilitation over the course of this parliament. Ross said, I was proud to visit the Bluebell Community Centre with the First Minister, but it is clear that they have been badly let down ever since by her government. Now articles by Jane Cassidy. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022. From the news section, Hamza Yousaf dismantles BBC claim about Scotland's NHS by Adam Robertson. Health Secretary Hamza Yousaf has hit back after a BBC report claimed the NHS in Scotland was considering charging people for treatment. A story released on the BBC's website stated there had been discussion of a two-tier health service mentioned in draft minutes of a meeting of NHS Scotland Health Board Chief Executives in September. Its headline read, 
NHS chiefs in Scotland discuss having wealthy pay for treatment. The article explained that the meeting raised the possibility of curtailing some free prescriptions. It also said the minutes of the meeting discussed a billion pound hole in the budget for the NHS and that they warned unscheduled care is going to fall over into the near term before planned care falls over. The story was subsequently followed up with a phone-in on Good Morning Scotland. Host Kate Adams said, We just really want to know what people make, will I say, make of the suggestion. Humza Yousaf, of course, has ruled it out, but it's still on the table. I think people are surprised that it's even been discussed and what you can't get away with is the billion-pound hole in the NHS budget. Humza Yousaf retweeted the original BBC article and said that any suggestion of any form of privatisation was complete baloney. Writing on social media, the Scottish Health Secretary said, SNP-led Scottish Government has never contemplated charging anyone, regardless of wealth, for treatment on NHS, never will. Our record demonstrates our commitment to the NHS core values, abolishing prescription charges, removal of dental charges for young people, continued funding, free eye tests. Any suggestion otherwise is, frankly, complete baloney. Executives at the top of the NHS had been given the green light to present what boards failed report reform may look like, according to the BBC report. However, the Health Secretary insisted the Scottish Government would not have countenance privatising the NHS in any form. Many took to social media to slam the broadcaster for the way in which the story was presented. National columnist Richard Wishart retweeted the clip from Good Morning Scotland with the caption, a story is rubbish by the Cabinet Secretary for Health and based on draft minutes from Health Board Chief Executives rather than Scottish Government. Writer Cameron McNeish replied to Wishart's tweet and said, Nevertheless, older people throughout Scotland will be worried sick by the way at BBC Scott has presented this. Hugely irresponsible politicking from our supposed national broadcaster. SNP MSP Karen Adam also tweeted, Contrast that with a British TV show having experts on to help with money-saving tips like do you qualify for free prescriptions? I hope they let all their viewers know that in Scotland they are, are and always will be free under the SNP. It's outrageous to charge for medicine. A BBC spokesperson said, Reporting on the NHS in Scotland is very important for, for our audience. They have a right to know what those leading the NHS in Scotland are discussing and that's what we've been reporting today. And that article was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022, from the news section, Scottish secondary teachers to strike in December over pay, by Hamish Morrison. Teachers will take two days of targeted strike action next month in a dispute over pay, their union has announced. Scottish Secondary Teachers Association, SSTA members, were balloted for strike action after rejecting a 5% pay offer and 90% voted for strike action and a turnout of 62%. The SSTA said that members in some local authority areas will strike on Wednesday, December the 7th, while others will walk out on Thursday, December the 8th. Members of Scotland's largest teaching union, the EIS, are due to take strike action this Thursday, November the 24th. Catherine Nicholl, SSTA president, said, The executive committee felt it had no option but to move to strike action due to the failure of the employers, COSLA, and the Scottish Government to make an improved pay offer. The last pay offer was made on August 19 and was quickly rejected by the teacher unions. Despite a series of engagements, not even one more penny has been put on the table. Teachers have had enough of fine words and have been forced to take strike action to achieve an improved pay award.
I hope the Scottish Government will step up and help avoid teacher strikes that nobody wants. Seamus Searson, SSTA General Secretary, said the strike action is intended to send a clear message to Cosland Scottish Government that teachers are serious about a fair pay deal. He said, This common practice of waiting to the last minute to reach a pay agreement shows a complete lack of respect for teachers as this pay award should have been paid in April. Teachers' pay has fallen in real term by 25% over the years and the failure to act promptly only adds to teachers' frustration. The strike action on Wednesday, December 7th will affect Argyll and Butte, Dumfries and Galloway, East Ayrshire, East Dumbartonshire, East Renfrewshire, Western Isles, Glasgow, Highland, Inverclyde, North Ayrshire, North Lanarkshire, Orkney, Renfrewshire, Shetland, South Ayrshire, South Lanarkshire and West Dumbartonshire. On Thursday, December 8th, SSTA members will strike in Aberdeen, Angus, Aberdeenshire, Kilkmanninshire, Dundee, Edinburgh, East Lothian, Falkirk, Fife, Midlothian, Moray, Perth and Kinross, the Scottish Borders, Stirling and West Lothian. The Scottish Government in Cosla were asked for comment in the articles by Hamish Morrison. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022, from the news section, Shemima Begum's citizenship hearing told she was trafficking victim by Jess Glass, PA reporter. Shamima Begum was influenced by a determined and effective ISIS propaganda machine and should have been treated as a child trafficking victim, a court has heard. Begum, now 23, was 15 when she and two other East London schoolgirls travelled to Syria to join the so-called Islamic State Group in February 2015. Her British citizenship was revoked on national security grounds shortly after she was found, nine months pregnant, in a Syrian refugee camp in February 2019. Begum is challenging the Home Office's decision to remove her British citizenship, with her lawyers arguing that the Home Office had a legal duty to investigate whether Begum was a victim of trafficking when her citizenship was revoked. At the start of a five-day trial hearing at the Special Immigration Appeals Commission, SIAC, on Monday, Samantha Knight's KC for Begum said, This case concerned a British child aged 15 who was persuaded, influenced and affected with her friends by a determined and effective ISIS propaganda machine. In written submissions, Knight said there were overwhelming evidence that Begum was, had been recruited, transported, transferred, harboured and received in Syria for the purposes of sexual exploitation and marriage to an adult male. The barrister added, she was following a well-known pattern by which ISIS cynically recruited and groomed female children as young as 14 so they could be offered as wives to adult men. Her lawyer said that the Home Office deprived Begum of her citizenship without seeking to investigate and determine, still less consider, whether she was a child victim of trafficking and whether there were failures by public authorities in the UK to prevent her being trafficked. Knights continued, What evidence is available shows that rather than viewing the appellant appealing as a victim, a child that was manipulated and exploited, the Home Secretary proceeded on the basis that she acted voluntarily in travelling to Syria and aligning with ISIS. Begum's lawyers argued that the Home Office have unlawfully failed to consider that she travelled to Syria and remained there as a victim of child trafficking. Knights later told the court that the then Home Secretary, Sajin Javid, was over-hasty in depriving Begum of her citizenship 
describing it as effectively an exile for life. Begum is also challenging the removal of her British citizenship on the grounds that it made her de facto stateless and that the decision was predetermined. James E.D. Casey, for the Home Office, said in written submissions that the security services continue to assess that Begum poses a risk to national security. This is a case about national security, he said, later adding, this is not a case about trafficking. E.D. said that Belgium travelled, aligned and stayed in Syria for four years and that she only left IS-controlled territory for safety reasons and not because of a genuine disengagement from the group. He continued, When she did emerge and gave multiple press interviews shortly before the Secretary of State decided to deprive her of her citizenship, she expressed no remorse and said she did not regret joining IS, acknowledging she was aware of the nature of the group when she travelled. Edie said that Javid was aware of Begum's age and circumstances of her travel to Syria when he made the decision to deprive her of her British citizenship. He probably considered those circumstances when evaluating the risk to national security. She posed, the barrister added. The hearing before Mr Justice J is due to finish on Friday with a ruling expected at a later date. In that article is by Jess Glass, PA reporter. From the National... Monday the 21st of October 2022, in the politics section, Sunak considering blocking Nadine Dorries and Alistair Jack Lord's seats, by Xander Ellis, political reporter. Rishi Sunak is reportedly considering a move to block Boris Johnson's attempt to hand seats in the Lords to close allies such as Nadine Dorries and Alistair Jack. It comes after the disgraced former Prime Minister looked to name four sitting Conservative MPs on his resignation honours list. Scottish Secretary Jack, former Culture Secretary Dorries, COP26 President Alex Sharma and former Cabinet Minister Nigel Adams. The move has sparked controversy in Whitehall as MPs cannot also sit in the House of Lords. In order to accept the peerages, the four Tories would need to resign their seats in the Commons, triggering by-elections. The Guardian reported in July that Johnson's team was aware of the issues that such nominations would bring. A source told the paper in the summer, you can't announce a peerage and say they won't kick in for two years after the next general election. Elevating MPs will mean those seats will be freed up to be contested. It will be a very early test for the new leader. However, Johnson is said to have asked the MPs nominated for peerages to delay taking them up so the Tories do not have to fight by-elections. But Lucy Neville-Rove, a Conservative peer and minister in the Cabinet Office, Suggested in the Lords that any precedent for such delays may not be relevant enough to allow Johnson's plans to go through. Asked if the UK government had any plans to recommend the conferring of deferred peerages on sitting members of Parliament, Neville Rolfe was non-committal. She said, It is a common law principle that members of the House of Lords cannot sit as MPs and, as such, we need to stand down from the House of Commons. The government are aware that there is some precedent for individuals delaying taking up their seats, but this is limited and largely related to their personal circumstances. Neville Roof pointed to specifically to Ruth Davidson, the former Scottish Tory leader who was given a life period by Johnson in July 2020. However, Davidson deferred joining the laws until the summer of 2021. The minister added, The point I was making right at the beginning, which I will, re- I will reiterate, is that the government are aware that there are some precedents for individuals delaying taking up their seats. However, this is limited and related, as in this case, to particular circumstances. 
There is no constitutional precedent for deferring a peerage so that MPs can take a seat in the Lords at a later date. To do so, Sunak will need to ask the monarch for special dispensation. However, Neville Roof suggested in another Lords debate that the Prime Minister had an obligation to avoid bringing the King into party politics. Sunak has constitutional responsibilities in relation to recommendations made to the Sovereign. In particular, to ensure that the Sovereign is not himself drawn into controversy, she said. The Times reported that the suggestion behind Neville Roof's statements was that the government could block Joe Boris Johnson's nominations, although Downing Street declined to comment. Sunak is st- stuck between constitutional precedents, which say both that he should, a- he should approve Johnson's resignation of honours nominations and decline to allow the deferral of peerages, or ask the King to do so. The House of Lords Appointment Commission is said to be vetting Johnson's peerage nominations, which also include Ross Kempsell, a close friend of his wife Carrie. However, Sunak will have the final say over peerages, with the Commission's role being advisory. That article was by Xander Eliards. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022, from the comment section, let's ask who gains from the Istanbul bombing. By Sarah Glynn, an article originally published on Sunday the 20th of November. Last Sunday's fatal bombing in a busy Istanbul street has raised echoes of Turkey's violent pre-election period in 2015. Then, after bombs killed more than 100 people outside the Ankara railway station in October 2015, European Union investigators argued there was reason to believe that the government had commissioned the terrorists. This time, the official account of what happened, which conveniently brought in all the government's adversaries, has already been shown to be riven with contradictions as well as being inherently incredible. The day after Sunday's attack, which killed six and injured 81, the Turkish government released the pictures of a woman in a large purple sweatshirt inscribed with the words New York, cowering between two Turkish flags. This, Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu claimed, was a captured bomber who had been sent by the Kurdistan Work- Workers' Party, PKK, and the Kurdish Syria-based People's Protection Units, YPG. Turkey refuses to distinguish between the two organisations. She was said to have been given her instructions in Kobani, the Kurdish Syrian city that turned the tide against ISIS, which Turkey is itching to invade, and to have intended to escape to Greece. Soylu refused to ex- accept American condolences for the bombing in order to reinforce his government's displeasure at the United States working with the YPG in the fight against ISIS. This cowering woman, who had even allowed herself to be caught with the clothes still in her flat that she'd been wearing in the CCTV footage of the bombing, makes a most unconvincing PKK or YPG operative. We have also been told, at different times, that she entered Turkey via Afrin or Idlib, two regions under the effective control of the Turkish army, where anyone with YPG connection is treated as a traitor. And now, it seems that at least one of those arrested as part of the conspiracy has social media links with the Turkish-backed jihadi militants operating in the region. Even more striking, and it is interesting that information was released that Bomber's phone has been found to have received two phone calls from a regional chair of the National Movement Party, MHP, the far-right coalition partner of the ruling Justice and Development Party, AKP. While every new piece of evidence raises more questions about the Turkish government's story, the biggest problem is that their main claim does not make any sense. In every crime we need to ask who benefits. 
In this case, the PKK and the YPG would not only gain nothing from the bombing, they stand to lose a great deal from being associated with it. The YPG has always been very careful to insist that it poses no threat to Turkey. Turkey has invaded parts of northern Syria anyway, but the YPG does not intend to give them any excuse to go further. The PKK argues that they have been listed as a terrorist organisation without evidence and they are and they're taking their case to the EU's Court of Justice. The last thing they would want to do is jeopardise their chances in this vital case. Behaviourally, YPG or PKK involvement also doesn't fit the official story. Both follow the Geneva Conventions and do not attack civilians. Both have firmly denied any involvement, but they were only able to do so after the Turkish government's claims had been repeated by media around the world. By contrast, the Turkish government does not have a history of blaming the PKK for acts done by third parties, or even by government themselves. And, as in 2015, the Turkish government and jihadi militants, who work closely together in the occupation of parts of northern Syria, would be the winners from any terrorist attack that could be blamed on the Kurds. Both want to see the Kurds discredited at home and abroad, and would welcome the excuse created by the scenario to carry out an attack in Kobani. The next Turkish election, both Parliament and President, must take place by June next year, and widespread economic hardship has lost President Erdogan and his AKP party a lot of support. He has not achieved the vote-winning victory he has been looking for, despite extensive military actions against the PKK in the mountain bases, where there have been repeated allegations of Turkish use of banned chemical weapons, and, thus far, the United States and Russia have not sanctioned another full-scale Turkish attack in the autonomous administration of North and East Assyria. Kurdish threats to domestic security, or a war against Kobani, could be used to incite people to rally around the, the government and to force the mainstream opposition group, centred around the Republican People's Party, CHP, to come in behind the government's actions. No other politicians would dare work with the pro-Kurdish Democrat, Democratic People's Party, HTP, and if the HDP were to be closed down, as currently threatened, crucial Kurdish voters would have, would have no one to whom they could give their vote. The Istanbul bomb makes no sense as an attack by the Kurds, but every sense is an attack against them. And there are very real fears that this bombing may be just be the beginning of some very bloody months. And that article is by Sarah Glenn. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022. From the Culture section, Peter Capaldi and Sam Ewan among winners at BAFTA Scotland Awards. By Adam Robertson. The winners of the 2022 BAFTA Scotland Award were announced at a ceremony on Sunday evening. Outlander stars Sam Ewan and Peter Capaldi were among the winners on the night. The former received the Scotland Audience Award, whilst Capaldi was presented with an Outstanding Contribution to Film and Television Prize. Capaldi, who has starred in the likes of Doctor Who and political satire The Thick of It, gave a nod to his fellow actors in his acceptance speech. He said, I just want to say actors are brilliant. And it's great when you get an award and it's all like this and everything's going really well. But for a lot of actors, it's not going well. And from day to day, from week to week, it can be really tough and you can't get through the door and you can't get out the door sometimes. So I just want them to know that sometimes the stars align and you get lucky and that's what happened to me. Elsewhere, Dougie Scott won the award for actor television for his leading role in the Evan Mouse's crime. TV show Guilt was the biggest winner in the night, receiving awards for the television scripted and writer film slash television for its creator, Neil Forsyth. 
It marks the second time the show has won in both categories at the awards. Slow Horses star, star Jack Loudon won for his role in Benediction, while his actress film was taken home by Izuka Hoyle, who starred in the hit film Boiling Point. Other winners included Danny McGarvey's Addictions for Best Factual Series, while the award for features was won by Miriam and Alan, Lost in Scotland. The Game Award was won by Glasgow-based studio Blazing Griffin for the Hercule Poirot, The First Cases, and that article was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Monday the 21st of November 2022, from the Culture section, exclusive, Scots band The Ram Stampets looked to combine Celtic music with punk, by Adam Robertson. Ian Kilgallen was out jogging when the idea for The Ram Stampets first came to him. Having played in punk bands like Dropkick Murphys all across the world, from Australia to the USA, he wanted to create a sound like no other. During his time touring the world, Kilgallen was always told he should try and blend Celtic music with that of the punk sound he held so dear. Out of this came the Round Stampets, a band formed at the start of the year which combines traditional Celtic music with that of punk. Speaking to The National, Kilgallen said, I've been lucky enough to be in punk rock all my life. My father was actually a jazz musician and played about eight or nine instruments. People thought I was a good songwriter and being a Celt, they said, why don't you try putting some folk instruments into your songs? I have to do something that's in my heart. I've never been driven by money, rightly or wrongly. The band, which is based in Dunoon, is made up of musicians from Perthshire, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Paisley and Greenock. Kogallan himself originally comes from Gurek. His music has features in movies such as Green Street and the TV show Gotham. The band released their first official video in late October, which was a cover of the classic track I Fought the Law, infused with folk instruments. The video itself was filmed in the Inverary Jail. The band's setlist is genuinely unique, from acoustic tracks such as My Country to Sea Shanties. The band has released a six-track mini-album with almost two-thirds of the original press of 300, having been sold already. The term Ramstampic, Kilgannon explains, comes from an old Scots word meaning mischievous rascals. He added, I was reading a book one night and seen, and seen the word Ramstampit and just fell in love with it. The hardest thing about getting a band together, honestly it's like trying to name a child, is getting a half decent name that hasn't been used before. Sometimes the name is the 20th or 30th down the line from where you started. Although Kilgallen is keen not to have his music put in a box in terms of genre, he, he says that people do tend to associate it with Scotland. The funny thing is, I don't think we actually ever mention Scotland in any of our songs, but people associate our sound with it, he explained. Kilgallen continued, We should shout about how good Scotland is and sing it from the rooftops. In the first three weeks, the CD has been played on radio stations in Scotland, England, Germany, Canada and the US. Kilgannon couldn't be happier, particularly given where it started. He said, Honestly, I honestly thought I'd just be happy if we could get a gig in Glasgow. Since then though, the group have played Rebellion Festival, the world's biggest punk and alternative music festival. Kilgallen added, Whatever it is, it works. The response has been completely amazing. I've always been one for trying to make something that sounds completely unique. If people hear a song, I want them to know it's us. To me, there's a lot of bands where there's not a lot of difference, and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that I was keen to do my own thing and see if people liked it. And that article was an exclusive by Adam Robertson. From the National, 22nd of November 2022, from the Politics section. 
Angus Robertson and James Cleverley meeting first of its kind by Judith Duffy. A meeting between Scotland's External Affairs Secretary and the UK Foreign Secretary last week was the first of its kind to be held since devolution, MPs have heard. Giving evidence to a House of Commons committee, Angus Robertson, who is also Scotland's Constitution Secretary, said the UK government largely has no interest in the position of the Scottish government when it comes to drawing up of international agreements and treaties. He said one example is negotiations for a global pandemic preparedness plan, with absolutely no involvement of the Scottish government, even though health is devolved. Robertson said cooperation between officials in the two governments does exist, but varied between departments in Whitehall. He told the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee, PACAC, last week I was in London and I met with James Cleverley, the new Foreign Secretary. And the institutional memory in the, in the Scottish Government is that it is the first ever meeting between the Scottish Government External Affairs Secretary and the UK's Foreign Secretary in the period of devolution. So that is since 1999. I could go on and say we have tried to have meetings about other things and we don't even have requests answered. I think it is really important to understand that things are really, really not working well and it is not for the lack of an interest being involved or having things to suggest. MPs on the committee heard from senior ministers from the Scottish and Welsh governments as part of an inquiry into how treaties and other international agreements in the UK can be effectively scrutinised post-Brexit. It comes after comments by former Environment Secretary George Eustace that the trade deal struck by the UK government with Australia was actually not that good for the UK. Robertson said there was a significant gap between theory and practice when it comes to what had been agreed to in terms of intergovernmental relations. He told the committee, despite bearing responsibility for implementing devolved aspects of any completed treaty, devolved governments rarely have any say in the formulation of the negotiating language determining the contents of the treaty. What should be a negotiating line for the UK as a whole is practically merely the UK's negotiating line and hasn't taken on board any of the needs, interests, concerns and expectations of the devolved governments and the views of the legislatures. He added, In my 18 months of Cabinet Secretary with responsibility for this area, I have not had one single meeting, not one, with a UK government minister to discuss treaty or other agreement negotiations and the Scottish Government's priorities. That came despite, among other things, the UK holding both the G7 and the COP26 presidency last year. That kind of experience runs right through the experience of the Scottish Government. On the issue of the UK-Australia trade agreement, Robertson said the involvement of Scottish Government's officials was extremely limited, despite efforts to represent Scottish interests. He added, at the present time, negotiations are underway for a pandemic preparedness treaty in relation to the World Health Organization. Health is devolved, and as far as I am aware, there is absolutely no involvement of the Scottish Government in relation to that treaty. So there seems to be different custom and practice in different UK government departments, with, I think to be frank, the view that largely we have no interest in what the position of the Scottish Government might be. That article was by Judith Duffy.
From the National, Tuesday the 22nd of November 2022, from the News section. Starmer using Torvis language on migration, say Scottish Greens. Keir Starmer is using the same insular and xenophobic language as the Tories on immigration, according to the Scottish Greens. The Labour leader has said that the common goal of the UK economy must be to wean itself off, quotes, immigration dependency, close quotes, and train up workers who are already here. In a speech to the Confederation of British Industry, CBI, conference, he said that the UK had become overly reliant on workers from abroad. However, his comments have drawn criticism after Nigel Farage posted a video to social media which said that Starmer was stealing policies from the 2015 UKIP manifesto. The GB news presenter also said that Labour were now to the right of the Tories when it came to immigration. The Scottish Greens have condemned the Labour leader's comments. The Scottish Greens economy spokesperson Maggie Chapman MSP, said Starmer may try to frame it as pragmatism, but he is repeating many of the same reactionary themes and tropes as the Tories when it comes to immigration. He is talking about human beings as if they are burdens or statistics that we need to be weaned off rather than real people. The UK has benefited economically, culturally and socially from immigration. Immigrants from the UK have also sought to make homes for themselves around the world. The idea that migration is a problem is small-minded, insular and xenophobic. Migrant communities are not to blame for low wages and poor conditions. Successive UK governments and exploitative employers are. Yet in the last th weeks alone, we have seen Starmer arguing that there are too many migrants working in the NHS, while his shadow chancellor has criticised the Tories for not deporting enough people. Chapman added... It's part of a cynical dog-missile campaign. He is clearly too scared to deal with the real causes of our economic woes, the reckless hard-right Brexit that he now pretends to support, or the major structural issues that are holding down wages and increasing inequality. It is the same strategy that we have seen from previous Labour governments, who were responsible for so much of the infrastructure and attitudes that the hostile environment was built upon. It was wrong when they brought out their Controls on Immigration mug in 2015, and it is wrong now. We should stand resolutely with our migrant communities. We should welcome immigration and support those who seek to make their lives here, to work, study and contribute to our communities in so many ways. Immigration is a profoundly human thing to do, and it enriches us all. It comes as the UK government scrambled to improve temporary accommodation for migrants, after it was revealed that infectious diseases were spreading among refugees in the overcrowded Manston processing facility in Kent. This article was by Ross Hunter. From The National, Tuesday the 22nd of November 2022, from the politics section. UK's recession to be worst the G7, OECD report finds. By Hamish Morrison. The UK will suffer the worst recession of any of the world's top economies as Britain's painfully high rate of inflation is exacerbated by the effects of Brexit and the UK government's untargeted energy support scheme, a new report has found. The latest forecast from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, reveal a sharp downgrade for the UK economy, 
which is expected to shrink by 0.4% in 2023 and grow by just 0.2% in 2024. It has predicted in September that UK growth would flatline in 2023. Germany is the only other G7 country set to see a contraction in gross domestic product, GDP, next year, with a 0.3% drop, according to the report. Italy will see only poultry growth of 0.2%, while the United States will eke out 0.5% expansion, with GDP set to rise by 06 in France and 1% in Canada and 1.8% in Japan. The UK is also the third worst performing nation of all the G20 advanced countries worldwide, with only Russia and Sweden seeing a bigger decline in GDP at 5.6% and 0.6%. When compared with the average of all the world economies, the UK's performance is set to trail behind the 2.2% in global growth predicted for next year. But this is still a sharp slowdown on the 3.1% expected in 2022 due to the energy crisis and trading sanctions sparked by Russia's war on Ukraine. The OECD also took aim at the UK government's support efforts to cap energy bills at around £2,500 until April, saying it will push up inflation and mean households and businesses will be hit by higher interest rates as a result as policymakers look to rein in prices and wage increases. It said, The untargeted energy price guarantee announced in September 2022 by the government will increase pressure on already high inflation in the short term, requiring monetary policy to tighten more and raising debt service costs. Better targeting of measures to cushion the impact of high energy prices would lower the budgetary cost, better preserve incentives to save energy and reduce the pressure on demand at a time of high inflation. The gloomy picture for the UK comes after the official forecaster, the Office for Budget Responsibility, OBR, last week warned Britain's economy will shrink by 2% in total over a lengthy recession that started in the third quarter. It downgraded previous projections that the economy would actually grow by 1.8% in 2023 to a fall of 1.4% for the year. When asked for Rishi Sunak's response to the OECD, the Prime Minister's official spokesman said, These are challenges that are affecting different countries at slightly different times. On the criticism over the energy support package, he added, We're taking a different approach post-April to the energy support, targeting it towards the most vulnerable. The OECD said UK inflation, which hit a 41-year high of 11.1% in October, will likely peak at the end of this year and remain above 9% into early 2023 before slowing to 4.5% by next year end and to 2.7% by the end of 2024. Its report sees UK interest rates rising further from 3% currently to 4.5% by April next year, while unemployment will lift from 3.5% to 5% by the end of 2024. On Britain's outlook, the OECD cautioned, risks to the outlook are considerable and tilted towards the downside. Higher than expected goods and energy prices could weigh on consumption and further depress growth. A prolonged period of acute labour shortages could force firms into a more permanent reduction in their operating capacity or push up wage inflation further. 
but it said households may choose to return to the jobs market to help boost stretched finances. While households may seek to boost their real income by striking for stronger wage increases, they may also increase their labour supply, either by returning from inactivity or by increasing working hours, which would be an upside risk, said the OECD. While the UK is facing a prolonged recession, the OECD believes world economy will avoid the same fate. OECD Interim Chief Economist Alvaro Santos Pereira said, We are currently facing a very difficult economic outlook. Our central scenario is not a global recession, but a significant growth slowdown for the world economy in 2023, as well as still high, albeit declining inflation in many countries. It warns that risks remain significant. In these difficult and uncertain times, policy has once again a crucial role to play. Further, further tightening of monetary policy is essential to fight inflation, and fiscal policy support should become more targeted and temporary. Shadow Exchequer Secretary to the Treasury, Abena Opong Asari, said it was a direct result of 12 years of Tory failures on both our energy and our economic security. They failed to secure our economy and get it growing, which has left us exposed to any external shocks, the Labour MP said. That article was by Hamish Morrison. From The National, Tuesday the 22nd of November 2022, from the news section. Violent and sexual crimes in Scotland on the rise, police figures show. By Abby Garton Crosby. New figures have shown a rise in violent and sexual crimes in Scotland, despite overall recorded incidents dropping to one of the lowest levels for almost half a century. Police Scotland has recorded 287 374 crimes in the year ending September 2022, the total down by 3% from the 297 712 crimes recorded in the year ending September 2021. The overall increase in recorded crimes was driven by a fall in COVID-related offences. However, the figures for the most recent 12-month period showed non-sexual crimes of violence were 8% higher than they had been in the year September 2021, rising from 64,147 to 69,353. Sexual crimes were found to be 6% higher than they were in the year ending September 2021, increasing from 14,052 to 14,838. There was also a 12% rise in crimes of dishonesty, with 100,246 recorded by police in the year ending September 2022, compared to 89,385 over the previous 12 months. According to the report from Scotland's st chief statistician, the 3% fall in recorded crime in the, in the year ending September 2022 was driven by a reduction in crimes recorded under coronavirus-related legislation. Such offences went from 19,861 in the year ending September 2021 to just 36 in the following 12 months. All other crimes collectively increased by 3%, the report noted. According to the publication, overall recorded crime in Scotland for the year ending September 2022 was at one of the lowest levels for 12-month period since 1974. 
Scottish Labour Justice spokesperson Pauline McNeill said it was shocking to see the number of violent and sexual crimes soaring once again. She says it beggars belief that the SNP government would try and pretend these figures are anything other than a national scandal. Their plans to cut justice budgets risk making this grim picture even worse. The SNP need to get a grip on spiralling rates of serious crimes so our communities can truly feel safer. Justice Secretary Keith Brown said, The latest figures today show Scotland continues to be a safe place to live. Recorded crime is at one of the lowest levels seen since 1974 and below pre-pandemic levels, meaning the vast majority of people do not experience crime. While there are fewer victims compared to 2007, we continue to strengthen support for those who experience crime and to promote work to reduce reoffending. This includes proposals to introduce an independent victims commissioner, making sure victims' voices are heard, and placing women and children at the heart of delivery. Continuing to reduce crime and the harm it causes both individuals and our society as a whole is central to our ambitious vision to reform our justice system. These historically, these historically low levels of crime are testimony to the continued efforts across the justice sector as we continue to deliver a safer Scotland for everyone. This article was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National of Tuesday the 22nd of November 2022, from the comment section, Shona Craven, Vultures are distorting the debate about care home costs. Talking about death is never easy. Combine it with discussion of that other certainty, taxation, and you're entering into very dangerous territory. Exchanges between national readers this week highlighted one of the difficulties of discussing money and old age. Alistair Barron observed that while Chancellor Jeremy Hunt had restored the triple lock on state pensions, he had declined to raise the personal tax threshold. This, he said, would mean pensioners on the basic state pension are going to start paying tax. Susan F.G. Ford replied to point out that due to the meagre level at which the basic state pension is set, the income of those receiving it is well below the threshold of £12,570, after which income tax is payable. Both readers are correct. However, as Alistair Gordon points out today, The group we call pensioners includes a diverse range of people, many of whom will have private pensions in addition to their state pension entitlement. Indeed, many will still be working and there have three sources of income, two pensions plus their wages, the total of which could quite easily exceed 12,570. That's before we even address wealth. The problem with the emotive general term pensioners is that it tends to conjure up images of those who are poor, frail and vulnerable when the reality is that many UK pensioners are wealthy, healthy and making all sorts of valuable contributions to society. Indeed, a significant cause of the current elderly care crisis is the fact that people are living for so much longer. 
The phrase baby boomers has been used as a convenient shorthand for those who have seen their personal fortunes rise due to the lucky post-war timing of their births. But half of those people are pensioners already and the other half will be soon. They are certainly not all wealthy homeowners, but many are. Is this the group we bring to mind when reading headlines about pensioners and their incomes? The question of whether the wealthy should be expected to use at least some of that wealth to fund their own care at the end of their lives is a contentious one, as Theresa May found to her cost when she was Prime Minister. But the time bomb May was seeking to defuse is still ticking. And as Scotland prepares to create a national care service against a backdrop of UK austerity, the question of funding is more pressing than ever. Media coverage of care home costs too often seems presented to maximise outrage among those reading or listening. We constantly hear talk of people having to sell their homes to pay for their care, even when that is not technically true, and they are instead deferring the care home fees until after their death. What is actually meant is that the value of an inheritance is reduced, and therein lies the rub. It's a common refrain that someone worked hard all their life to provide for their family and therefore should not have to sell their home post-death to pay for their own care. It's seen as impolite to suggest that those advancing this argument are less concerned about the efforts of their parents or grandparents put into acquiring a given property, which then ballooned in value due to factors beyond their influence, and more interested in how much they personally stand to gain from the work and luck of others. I'm sure those heirs wouldn't mind paying a little more in income tax if it meant a greater proportion of care home costs came out of the public purse instead of their own private nest eggs. But surely they can appreciate this is not fair in the grand scheme of things. In particular, it's a kick in the teeth to those others of their own generation and younger who are trapped in poverty despite working hard and paying tax and who have no hope of scraping together a deposit for a flat, let alone passing on a house, assuming they can afford to have children to pass it on to. Last year, the Telegraph risked biting the hands that feed it by publishing a comment piece by Paul Lewis, the presenter of BBC Radio 4's Moneybox, headlined, You don't have to sell your home to pay for care, but you should. He argued it makes sense for people with properties to sell up and use the value to pay for the best care in the nicest place that you can afford. Rather pointedly, he observed that any decent heirs would rather you use the money to make yourself as comfortable and happy as you can be in your final years. If only we could be confident that decent heirs outnumber the circling vultures who see every extra care expense as coming out of their own pockets. It's a grim paradox that those who treat their elderly loved ones as piggy banks are the least deserving of any inheritance at all. 
If we want elderly care homes worthy of the name, they need to be funded properly and run by staff who feel valued. The needs of residents must be the top priority, not the future bank balances of their relatives. Without nationalisation, this will be a major challenge. But changing the poisonous narrative around older people's assets would be a good place to start. This article was by Shona Craven. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of November. 250 people die in Scotland last year while homeless. An article written by Ninian Wilson. An estimated 250 homeless people died in Scotland last year, figures show. Although down slightly from 2020, when there were an estimated 256 such deaths, the total for 2021 is 52% higher than the first time the figures were produced in 2017. Then there were estimated to be 164 deaths among Scotland's homeless population, with the overall number including people in temporary accommodation as well as those sleeping rough. Housing Secretary Shona Robeson described the figures produced by the National Records of Scotland as heartbreaking reading. The report revealed there were an estimated 250 homeless deaths in Scotland in 2021. This is at a similar level to 2020. Homeless deaths were at a higher level now compared to 2017, when these statistics were first collected. According to the experimental statistics, just over half of deaths amongst those who were homeless were due to drug misuse, with this being the cause of 127 deaths, representing 51% of the total. Suicide accounted for 9% of deaths, while 7% were related to alcohol, according to the National Records of Scotland. There were also two recorded deaths of people experiencing homelessness where COVID-19 was the underlying cause of death in 2021. The vast majority of homeless deaths were males, while 60% of those who died were under 45 years of age. In the report, the National Records of Scotland explained that as homeless deaths are difficult to count, the method it used tries to account for and estimate how many we might have missed. Of the 250 deaths that occurred last year, 222 were identified from death registration records, with an additional 28 deaths estimated using statistical modelling. Julie Ramsey, head of vital events at the National Records of Scotland, said drug misuse deaths of people experiencing homelessness fell in the past year for the first time from 151 to 127, but it was still the cause of over half of all deaths for people experiencing homelessness in 2021. As in previous years, the death threat of males is much higher than that of females. 81% of deaths in 2021 were male and 19% were female. The age profile of females was younger, with 72% of those who died being under the age of 45. As experimental statistics are still in the testing phase and are not yet fully developed, the National Records of Scotland report added they've not yet been assessed against the rigorous quality standards of national statistics. Ms Robeson said, Behind every statistic is a human story, and this year's report provides heartbreaking reading. 
We know that experience of multiple forms of extreme disadvantage, including homelessness, poor mental health and opioid dependence, is linked to higher rates of ill health and premature death. We're committed to doing all we can to address disadvantages and prevent homelessness from happening in the first place. That's why we're introducing new homelessness prevention duties in the forthcoming Housing Bill, and why we continue to support local authorities to develop housing first programmes. While it's positive to see a fall in the number of drug-related deaths compared to 2020, the numbers remain worryingly high. One focus of the National Mission on Drug Deaths is to strengthen partnerships between health and homelessness services to improve outcomes for people experiencing homelessness and multiple complex needs. Matt Downey, the chief executive of the charity Crisis, said, No one should accept these figures as normal. Every single one of these deaths represents a tragedy and an injustice. Every one of these people were part of our communities and they will be missed. People are dying while experiencing homelessness year on year on year, leaving friends and families behind and with their potential left unrealised. We must act now to stop more people dying while experiencing homelessness. This can't be allowed to keep happening. We must prevent homelessness from happening in the first place and provide support for people who have lost their home to help them end their homelessness. He added, we know what causes homelessness and we know how to end it. If we work together, we can do that, but we don't have a moment to waste. An article written by Ninian Wilson. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of November. Hamza Youssef in bid to hammer out nurse pay deal to see off NHS strike threats. An article written by Hamish Morrison. Health Secretary Hamza Youssef has been urged to see sense as he resumes formal pay talks with health unions. The Royal College of Midwives, or RCM, members are among the NHS staff who have threatened strike action following what they describe as an insulting pay offer from the Scottish Government. Mr Youssef is meeting RCM members and other health unions on Tuesday afternoon to discuss pay conditions. The RCM has said it will announce dates for strike action with a heavy heart if the talks fail. NHS staff, including midwives and maternity staff, are amongst those threatening to walk out, with the government also facing strike action by teachers. The government previously offered NHS staff a £2,205 flat rate pay increase, which would equate to 11% for the lowest earners. However, it was rejected by unions. The offer would have been backdated to April, equating to an average increase of 7%. But the RCM said it would be a real-terms pay cut amid rising inflation, which hit 11.1% last month. They have instead demanded 5% above inflation. As the discussions head into their third round, Mr Youssef has been urged to give the NHS staff the pay they deserve. Thousands of ambulance service staff and psychiatrists have also backed industrial action. Speaking ahead of the meeting, Jackie Lambert, RCM Director for Scotland, said, We're always open and prepared to talk to the government to negotiate a decent deal. We called the first pay offer an insult. The revised one just piled injury onto that insult. So this one, the third round now, needs to end with an inflation-busting pay award. Our members are still planning for the contingency of industrial action. 
They do so with a heavy heart, but they have been pushed into a corner and see no other option. I implore Holyrood to see sense, prove that their often touted commitment to NHS staff are not just warm words and give midwives the pay they deserve and need. Speaking in Holyrood before the meeting, Mr Yusuf said, I'll be sitting around the table with trade unions to try and hammer out a deal. I think it's to their credit, and I hope to the credit of all the parties, that we're continuing to be prepared, all of us, to sit down to get a deal to avert strike action. None of us want to see industrial action at any time, let alone during the course of this winter, so I look forward to these discussions. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of November. Man who heckled Prince Andrew in Edinburgh will not face court. An article written by Ross Hunter. The man charged with breach of the peace after heckling Prince Andrew during the Queen's funeral cortege in Edinburgh will not face court. Queen Elizabeth's coffin was being led from the Palace of Holyrood House towards St Giles Cathedral on the Royal Mile on September the 12th, when the incident occurred. Footage posted on social media showed a young man heckling Prince Andrew as he walked behind his mother's coffin. The man was then wrestled to the ground by two bystanders who were charged with assault last month. However, despite being arrested and charged with breach of the peace over the incident, the Crown Office has announced that the 22-year-old will no longer face court. A spokesperson said the Procurator Fiscal received a report concerning a 22-year-old male in connection with an alleged incident on September the 12th this year. After full and careful consideration of all facts and circumstances, the case was dealt with by way of an offer of an alternative to prosecution. Alternatives to prosecution can include warnings, work orders, fines and compensation orders. However, the Crown Office said it would not say what alternative was used in this case. Prosecutors also said no action will be taken at this time against a woman who held an anti-monarchy sign ahead of the accession proclamation of King Charles III in Edinburgh. The 22-year-old Edinburgh University student was also arrested outside St Giles Cathedral on September the 11th. The Crown Office said the Procurator Fiscal received a report relating to a 22-year-old female and an incident said to have occurred on September the 11th this year. After careful consideration of the facts and circumstances of the case, including the available admissible evidence, the Procurator Fiscal decided that there should be no proceedings taken at this time. The Crown reserves the right to proceed in the future if it's appropriate and in the public interest to do so. An article written by Ross Hunter. The National Politics on Wednesday the 23rd of November. Nicola Sturgeon reacts as Supreme Court blocks India Ref 2. An article written by Laura Webster. Nicola Sturgeon has shared her reaction as the Supreme Court decided Scotland doesn't have the power to hold an independence referendum without the UK's permission. The First Minister said she was disappointed by the verdict after judges ruled on Wednesday morning. The SNP chief argued that the court's finding helps to expose the myth of the UK as a voluntary partnership. While disappointed by it, I respect the ruling of the Supreme Court. It doesn't make law, only interprets it, she wrote. A law that doesn't allow Scotland to choose its own future without Westminster's consent exposes as a myth any notion of the UK as a voluntary partnership and makes the case for independence. 
Scottish democracy will not be denied, she went on. Today's ruling blocks one route to Scotland's voice being heard on independence, but in a democracy our voice cannot and will not be silenced. The First Minister had been hoping to hold India F2 on October the 19th next year if the court found the Parliament could move forward with it legally. She made clear ahead of the judges' unanimous verdict that if they ruled it out, the next general election would be used as a de facto referendum on Scottish independence. Speaking later at a press conference in Edinburgh, Ms Sturgeon revealed that her party would be holding an emergency conference in the new year to establish how that de facto referendum would work. The party will also be launching a campaign on Scottish democracy, she said. Ms Sturgeon told journalists, I'm well aware that there will be a real sense of frustration today in both the SNP and in the wider movement. I share that. My message, though, is this. While that's understandable, it must be short-lived, and I believe it will be. Indeed, I suspect we'll start to see just how short-lived in the strength of the gatherings planned for later today in Edinburgh and in other parts of Scotland. She said the case of Scottish independence is now essential because of what Westminster control means on a day-to-day basis now and for future generations. An article written by Laura Webster. The National, on Wednesday, November the 23rd. Opinion. Stage is set for a busted union. A column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. Even though we don't as yet know what the court is going to say, the publication of the UK Supreme Court ruling on the independence referendum case brought by the Scottish Government has already proven highly informative about the relationship between Scotland and the other nations of this so-called United Kingdom. Although the case turns on the narrow legal question of whether the Scotland Act gives the Scottish Parliament the legal authority to implement the manifesto commitment of the Scottish Government and proceed with an independence referendum without the permission of the Prime Minister, the wider ramifications of this case are immense. This is a case which could potentially give a definitive answer to the question of whether the United Kingdom really is a voluntary union of nations which respects Scotland's traditional right to self-determination, or whether this is a union founded upon compulsion in which Scotland and the other nations of the UK must obtain the consent of the elected representatives of the largest nation in the UK before being permitted to ask themselves about their status. If the latter is indeed the legal situation, it destroys the traditional claim of generations of Scottish Unionist politicians who've always assured Scotland that it's up to Scots alone whether Scotland remains a part of the UK or becomes an independent state. We will have learned that the generations-long understanding of Scotland's place in the UK is a lie, a convenient fiction peddled by successive British governments who allowed Scotland to believe that it's a partner in a voluntary union just as long as there was never any realistic chance of the people of Scotland putting their assertion to the test and voting for independence. There's an appreciation in Scotland of these wider implications of the court case and anticipation of the ruling. However, in England, it appears that not only is there little or no understanding of the potential ramifications of the case, there seems to be very little awareness of it even taking place. On Sky News over the past few days, I've noticed more attention being paid to the question of whether football fans in Scotland are supporting the England team in the World Cup, 
over a court case which could potentially either see Scotland hold an independence referendum next year or destroy the traditional understanding of the very basis of the United Kingdom as a voluntary union. The reality is that people in England don't really care. The wider British media doesn't really care. They have no real reason to care. The way that the UK is constituted already ensures that England gets what it votes for, albeit within the constraints of the unfair first-past-the-post system so beloved of the two large parties. The position Scotland currently finds itself in, where its elected government is being prevented from carrying out a major part of its elected manifesto, could never arise in England. Westminster is the de facto Parliament of England, where an overwhelming majority of MPs represent English constituencies. Should that de facto English Parliament ever be told that the law prevented its governing party from carrying out one of the manifesto commitments it was elected to implement, Westminster would simply change the law. Yet in this supposed union of equals, the exercise of democracy in Scotland can be thwarted by politicians that Scotland did not vote for and whom Scotland cannot hold to account. Today we'll find out if this so-called United Kingdom respects the democratic will of the people of Scotland or not. Whatever the court rules, most people in England will be far more interested in the progress of their football team than whether the state we live in is really democratic. A column written by the Wee Ginger Doug. The National Politics on Wednesday the 23rd of November. Supreme Court blocks Scottish independence referendum. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Scottish Parliament does not have the competence to legislate for an independence referendum without Westminster's permission. After a two-day hearing in October, justices said they had 8,000 pages of documents to review, but would rule as soon as possible. Just six weeks later, the five judges have made their decision and ruled that Scotland cannot hold a referendum without Westminster's backing. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon instructed Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain to refer the case to the UK's highest court in an attempt to break the constitutional deadlock over whether or not Holyrood can pass a bill to hold a referendum vote without Westminster's consent. As the Constitution is a reserved matter under the Scotland Act of 1998, Supreme Court justices were asked to answer two points – whether the court will rule on a draft bill and the Scottish Parliament's competence to pass such legislation. Lord Reid, President of the court, said the decision was returned so quickly because justices were unanimous. The court ruled that the content of the draft referendum bill does relate to reserved matters under the Scotland Act of 1998, as a yes result in a referendum would have an impact by ending the union and therefore the sovereignty of the UK Parliament in relation to Scotland. The justices rejected the Lord Advocate's argument that the outcome of the referendum and the political implications should not be considered by the judges and that they should only rule on a point of law. Lord Reid said, a lawfully held referendum would have important political consequences in relation to the Union and the United Kingdom Parliament. Its outcome would possess the authority in a constitution and political culture founded upon democracy of a democratic expression of the view of the Scottish electorate. 
it would either strengthen or weaken the democratic legitimacy of the Union and of the United Kingdom's Parliament's sovereignty over Scotland, depending on which view prevailed, and would either support or undermine the democratic credentials of the independence movement. It's therefore clear that the proposed bill has more than a loose or consequential connection with the reserve matters of the Union of Scotland and England and the sovereignty of the United Kingdom Parliament. The SNP's written submission on the right of self-determination was also rejected by the justices who said that they were unable to accept the argument. Lord Reid told the court that the party's submission was based primarily on the right to self-determination in international law and used Quebec and a ruling in the Canadian Supreme Court, adding that this only exists in situations of former colonies or where a people is oppressed or where a group is denied meaningful access to government. The Canadian Supreme Court found that Quebec did not meet the threshold of colonial or oppressed people. The same is true of Scotland and the people of Scotland, Lord Reid added. The justices also told the court that they had decided to rule on the issue as it was not a hypothetical or premature reference, as the UK government's law officers had argued during the two-day hearing in October. An article written by Abby Garton Crosby. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of November. Teaching Unions Blast Insulting New Pay Offer An article written by Craig Megan The boss of Scotland's largest teaching union has blasted a pay offer aimed at averting strikes later this week as nothing less than an abject insult as school staff carry on preparations to walk out tomorrow. The Scottish Government made a new offer to the Educational Institute of Scotland and the Scottish Secondary Teachers Association unions yesterday in a bid to prevent industrial action, with the former set to strike tomorrow. Shirley Ann Somerville urged union leaders to postpone action to consider the offer. This is a fair offer which recognises that the cost of living crisis is the priority, with higher increase for staff on lower salaries, the Education Secretary said. This is now the fourth offer that has been made. In the same time, the EIS has not changed its request for a 10% pay increase, even for those on the highest incomes. I would urge leadership to postpone plans for industrial action and consider the offer. The EIS unanimously rejected the Minister's plea, with its General Secretary Andrea Bradley describing the offer as nothing less than an abject insult to Scotland's hard-working teaching professionals and a kick in the teeth from the government. Teachers overwhelmingly rejected a 5% offer more than three months ago, and now, after months of prevarication and weeks of empty promises, Cosler and the Scottish Government came back with an offer that is worth that same 5% to the vast majority of teachers, she said. This is not, as the Scottish Government claims, a progressive offer. It's a divisive offer made on a differentiated basis, which is actually worse for many teachers in promoted posts. Under the proposals, teachers earning less than £40,107 will receive an increase of £1,926 per year. That's 6.85% for those on the lowest salaries while those earning more will receive a 5% increase and those earning more than 60000 will receive £3,000. An SSTA spokesperson described it as a very disappointing pay offer. The unions have been led down the garden path by Cosler and the Scottish Government, they said. 
This offer will not go down well with teachers, and I would expect the planned strikes to go ahead. An article written by Craig Meegan. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 23rd of November. Tories delighted with Supreme Court independence referendum verdict. An article written by Laura Webster. Scottish Tories have welcomed the Supreme Court's verdict that an independence referendum cannot be legally held without Westminster's permission. Party leader Douglas Ross responded to Wednesday's judgment with a celebration of the clear and unequivocal move. The Scottish people have made it clear in poll after poll that they don't want another referendum next year, he claimed, despite the 2021 Holyrood election returning a majority of MSPs standing for India F2 in this parliament. The country faces enormous challenges right now. Our economy, our NHS are in crisis. We have a wave of public sector strikes, including the first teacher strike in almost four decades. These key issues must be everyone's top priority, he said. Holding another divisive referendum next year is the wrong priority at the worst possible time for Scotland. Meanwhile, former Tory MSP Adam Tompkins was unable to hide his delight at the blocking of a referendum. I'm stunned by that, I have to say, the constitutional lawyer wrote delighted and stunned. He added, an absolute disaster for the nationalists, and bringing this case was their ruse, let's not forget. Speaking at a press conference following the result, Nicola Sturgeon said triumphant attitudes from the Unionists would not be wise. Baroness Ruth Davidson, former Scottish Tory chief, also welcomed the result. While this ruling isn't surprising, its unanimity and clarity is welcome. No doubt the SNP will try to leverage this ruling for further grievance, if only the huge effort, capacity and resource spent bidding to rerun the original vote had been put into health, education and the economy. Scottish Labour leader Anasawa was more delicate with his language, but the message was strikingly similar. We must now focus on the problems facing our country, from rising bills to the crisis in our NHS, he said in a statement. There's not a majority in Scotland for a referendum or independence, neither is there a majority for the status quo. The First Minister had asked the Lord Advocates to refer the Scottish Government's independence referendum bill to the court to determine whether it was legally competent without a Section 30 order being granted by the UK first. While Scotland's top legal officer, the Lord Advocate, argued it was legally sound as the bill would not directly affect reserved matters, the UK government called on the court not to make a decision on the matter at all. But on Wednesday, judges decided that the bill was not loosely connected to the preserved matter of the Constitution as the Lord Advocate suggested, and therefore Scotland could not press ahead with India F2 on October the 19th next year as Nicola Sturgeon had planned. Now it's expected that the SNP will push ahead with plans to hold a de facto referendum through the next general election. More than a dozen rallies will take place across Scotland on Wednesday to coincide with the verdict. An article written by Laura Webster. This is from The National on Thursday 24th of November 2022. This is from the news section. Almost hilarious. Douglas Ross still claims UK is voluntary union. This article is by Adam Robertson. An interview in which Scottish Conservative leader 
Douglas Ross insisted the UK as a voluntary union has been described as almost hilarious. Following yesterday's Supreme Court ruling on Indraf 2, Ross said it was an opportunity for both our governments to work together. He said the country was going through really challenging times and that opinion polls showed the vast majority of Scots did not want another referendum. This comes as a new poll found half of Scots would vote for the SNP at the next general election if doing so meant leaving the Union. Ross then said it was not true when it was put to him that the majority of Scots put in place pro-independence politicians at the last Holyrood election. Speaking on BBC's Good Morning Scotland, he was asked, if the Union was voluntary, then how does Scotland go about leaving? Ross said, well, of course it's voluntary, and I've given you the clearest example that we live in a voluntary Union because just eight years ago, we were given the opportunity to have our say in this issue. It's a massive issue, and the people of Scotland decided that they wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Of course, back then, there was consensus among the political parties that there was an opportunity to have a referendum. Following on from yesterday's ruling, hundreds of Scots turned out at rallies across the country to protest the decision. Speaking at an event in Edinburgh, Nicola Sturgeon told the crowd, the United Kingdom is not a voluntary union of nations. Ross continued, if I can just say, you know, I think everyone would say that 2011 and the period between 2011 and the referendum in 2014 was very different to what we have now in terms of the vote and the consensus among the political parties. Right now, what I hope we can get consensus is that there is a consensus for us to work together to deliver on the big challenges that we are facing to get to work on crucial issues that really impact families across Scotland right now. Some won't be able to go to work because they're looking after the kids because teachers are striking for the first time in 40 years. These are the issues that the Scottish Government and the First Minister could be focused on that we know over the next few weeks and the months Nicola Sturgeon is going to be discussing with her nationalist supporters how they can circumvent the rules and the judgement of the Supreme Court. I think that's the wrong priority right now. SNP MP Pete Wishart slammed Ross for the interview. He wrote on Twitter, Douglas Ross, almost hilarious on BNC GMS. Every election the Scottish Conservatives have contested since 2014 has been on the single issue of stopping a second NDRF, and they lost everyone decisively. Wishart then added, geez, I bet he's glad that's over. The unionists seem to be imploding on what they thought was going to be their finest hour. They just can't concede that this is no longer a voluntary union. That article was by Adam Robertson. This is from The National on Thursday, 24th of November, 2022, from the news section, Billy Connolly's best quotes on Tories, Labour and Independence. Article is by Laura Webster. To mark Billy Connolly's 80th birthday, we're looking back at the legendary comedian's top political quotes. Connolly is well known for his left-wing views and years ago was vocally opposed to the idea of Scottish independence. However, in recent years, he has softened somewhat and offered insight into how he now views Scotland's path ahead. Speaking to Sky News in 2020, the straight-talking performer gave his honest opinion on the former Prime Minister. Anybody who listens to Boris needs professional help, he told the journalist. He's a big silly toff. Britain's been listening to big silly toffs for years. It's time to listen to themselves and got on with it. In the same interview, Conley told viewers about his opinion on politicians in general. 
More people should listen to comedians and fewer people should listen to politicians. They should listen to comedians and poets. They are telling the truth. His experience with pathetic Labour politicians. Speaking as part of the BBC Scotland docu-series Billy and Does, Connolly opened up on some of his more personal political experiences. He explained he felt conned into being part of a 1974 Labour Party election broadcast. I was kind of conned into it, he explained. I was asked to come up to a meeting I might find interesting. I went. I didn't find it interesting. But somebody asked me a question. I answered and I suddenly discovered I was on the party political broadcast. So you won't find me very near political people now. He went on to talk about how a Scottish Labour politician from Anderson, his birthplace, talked to him. She started to try to out-slum me, saying my slum was worse than your slum. That thing Labour politicians do. I find it pathetic. On Scotland being forced out of the EU by Brexit, despite 62% of Scots backing Remain. In his 2018 book Made in Scotland, previously India opposed Connolly gave a different view on the future of his home country. The Brexit vote is a disaster and the breaking up of the togetherness of Europe is a crime bordering on a sin, he wrote. I think the more people are together, not separate, the happier they will be. The most important thing for Scotland is to keep our contact with Europe. Scots voted to stay in Europe, and if the only way for us to do that is to become independent from England, that may just be the way to go. And I never thought I would say that. On nationalism and the idea of a Scottish Republic, speaking in the Billy and Us series, Conley spoke of his commitment to never allowing yourself to be put in a box, mark working class or Scottish, or anything else that limits who you are, or what you can say. He said, I've never liked nationalism in any of its guises. I'm not saying I've never agreed with independence. I think a Scottish Republic is as good an idea as any I've ever heard, but I don't represent anybody or anything. I don't think it's wise to. Independence is the way Scotland is headed. Speaking to the media before the release of Billy Connolly, it's been a pleasure. Connolly said he thinks Scotland is now heading towards leaving the Union. I think they're getting close to it. They're fed up with voting one way and getting whatever England votes for, he said. And when they tried to vote for independence, the English government said it's bad because you'll lose the common market. You won't have the European market because you've gone independent. And so they voted against independence and then this government voted to leave the common market. So they felt cheated. I don't know if they'll ever do it, but I think that's the way they're heading. That article was by Laura Webster. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.